hello everybody. Uh, this month we've been walking through a teaching series called Future Church. Uh, our church is heading into a remodel from an attractional assimilation model where the goal was to kind of bring people into the church. We're moving to a missional multiplication model where the goal is to send people out into their calling, into their mission field to make disciples. And we're really rethinking everything. So we, we introduced our new mission statement. It just says it this way. Our mission is following Jesus as we live out God's story every day, everywhere. It's an all-play, everyday mission statement that everybody can get their minds around. We've also done some renovation work on our core values. Uh, we've turned them into declaration statements, and we've added some because uh, statements as well. And so I wanted to share those values with you today uh, as well, since we've been slowly rolling out kind of more and more details this month about this new direction we're going. So there are five core values. I'm just going to read them to you. They are, we start with Scripture because God's word reveals God's purposes. Second is we stay hungry because we refuse to settle for a passive faith. Three, we play offense because an advancing church brings light to a dark world. Four, we invite conversation because authenticity disarms divisiveness. And finally, five, we're all in because the church is best when every person is mobilized. Now these values are like the, the rudder of a ship. They make sure that we're always steering toward our destination without getting off course to the right or to the left. But the main menu this month is to introduce you to our new scorecard. How do we measure if we're accomplishing our mission beyond just attendance numbers and giving numbers? How do we measure actual discipleship outcomes? And we can only work on that if we define what a disciple looks like. And so after searching the scriptures and adding some modern language to these, we came up with what we're calling our dream disciple at grace. What kind of disciples of Jesus do we need to produce here in order to reach this region in our generation? And so these four roles of a dream disciple uh, that we want every believer at grace to embody are as follows. One, compassionate storyteller and then savvy follower, and then intentional friend, and embedded influencer. Now, these four, it's not, it's not a thing like we're saying, you know, pick which one you are. <laughs> we're saying that a maturing disciple will be exhibiting all four of these roles in their life at some level, and understanding at all times, like where am I thriving, where do I need to grow, which one of these is my strongest, which is my weakest. And so today we're on number three, which is intentional friend. And so I'll share its description as today's big idea. As an intentional friend, I will build healthy relationships and help God restore broken ones. That's our dream disciple role for today. And in full transparency, like this is the one that I personally struggle with the most. And please understand, every week when I stand up here, I preach beyond my level of obedience. It's part of the deal when you present God's heart and the ideal of scriptures on a weekly basis. And so I, I never want you to be held back by me. And so I try to tell you the truth of what God, God's word says, no matter how I'm personally doing with that truth at the time. But today's particularly tough because this is a huge growth area for me. And so with that disclaimer, let me just ask you this question. How valuable is friendship to you? This word friend has taken on a skewed meaning in our social media culture. I don't know how many friends I have on Facebook, but most of them are not what the Bible would refer to as a friend, even if Mark Zuckerberg calls them that. Uh, these days, most people don't just, you know, they just don't pursue genuine friendships. Some people just don't know how. Others don't think it's important. In fact, a recent survey asked the question, over the past six months, with how many people have you discussed a deeply an important matter? 
The vast majority couldn't come up with one single person outside their family. So I want us to do a quick exercise as we begin today. I want you to call to mind the names of your five closest friends. If it helps, write them down, get a little piece of paper, put them in your notes app or whatever. Who are your closest five friends? Now, let me be clear. These are friends, not family. Don't write down your spouse, your kids, your dog, and your imaginary friend, you know, Casper the Friendly Ghost or whatever. That's a dated reference, I realize. If you're young, Google it. Who are the people in your life that you could call at two in the morning? The people that you can be transparent with, the ones who know everything about you. And don't cheat. Don't be like, well, I, you know, I'm at Grace, and so my five closest friends are Pastor Derek, Pastor Sarah, Pastor Scott, Pastor Mike, Pastor Jim. Like, no, no, no. Call your friends to mind. Who are your 2 a.m. people? So think about it. Give you a second here. And I would just ask, is this hard for anyone? Maybe it's hard for you, and here's why. Because according to the American Sociological Review, the average American only has two close friends. Just a few decades ago, that number was six. So our close friends have been cut down by, you know, two-thirds. And a whole bunch of people report that they don't even have one single close trusted friend. Why is this? Well, there are, there are some factors. Like one reason is that people are working more and there's less time for friends. As work time goes up, friend time goes down. Another reason I found interesting is that divorce rates continue to rise. And divorces aren't just hard on families, they're hard on friendships. Couples divide up the stuff and couples divide up the time with the kids and they also divide up the friends. And then friends feel weird talking to one spouse, not the other, so they choose neither. Another factor is social media. Social media is a great way to stay in touch with people that you may have otherwise lost touch with, but it's not a great way of developing deep friendships. Another factor in the decline of friendships is just isolation. Our society has decided to quickly arrange itself so that you never have to leave your house. You can work from home, you can shop from home, you can buy groceries from home, you can get a Peloton workout from home. Like You never have to leave your home. Last year, teenagers are hit the hardest. Last year, compared to 10 years ago, teenagers are spending 11 fewer hours with friends every week. So back to your five names. God's word seems to indicate that those names are really important when it comes to your faith and even your overall quality of life. Friendship is so important because you were made for it and it makes you in a very real sense. Very few decisions have the kind of impact on your life bigger than the decision about who are your friends and how do you build friendships. And yet we rarely talk about friendship. And so for our purposes in this future church journey that we're on, one of the most important building blocks for discipleship is the ability to develop and nurture friendships. In Jesus' great commission, his mission statement for all of us is when he said, now you go and you make disciples you know that in order to accomplish that, you and I are gonna have to start with friendships. As our dream disciple role begins, it says, I will build healthy friendships. And so we're gonna look to God's word to discover why friendship is so important. And we're gonna start over in John 15, verse nine. If you have a Bible or a device, you can turn to John chapter 15. Jesus says this to his disciples, starting in nine. He says, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. Now down to verse 12. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends. And if you do what I've commanded you, 
No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. Why are friendships so important? Well, here's, here's why. You were made for friendships. Verse 9 references this love that exists between the Father and the Son. Jesus is pointing back there before he talks about friendship. This relationship, the Trinity, becomes the paradigm for the relationship between Jesus and the disciples. And then eventually it becomes the paradigm for how we will love one another. See, for all eternity, the Father and the Son have existed in relationship. And since we have been made in the image of God, that means we too were made for friendships. This concept of interrelationship is built into the fabric of the eternal nature of God. There has never been a time in all of eternity when there, was not, when there was one who was not in relationship to another. And so the Trinity is in the, the nature of who God is at its very core. And it's why when God created Adam, he said, it's not good that a man should be alone. This isn't just a statement about marriage. It's a statement about friendship. We have to ask, why would God look at something that he just made that was not all messed up by sin yet and declare it to be not good? It's the only thing that he said was not good. Well, it's because Adam was alone and Adam was created to be like God and God was not alone. And some of you say, well, I, I, I don't really need other people. I, I just like, you know, working on my truck alone or shopping alone or playing video games alone. That's fine if that's how you fill your emotional tank. But if you wear being a loner like a badge of honor, slow your roll for a minute because it also means that you're not very much like God. Because God exists in relationships and he created us for relationships. And so in these verses we just read from John 15, Jesus gives us a glimpse of what God-like friendships look like. He shows us that a true friend is someone who always lets you in and never lets you down. It sounds like a Rick Astley song. Always gonna let you in, never gonna let... Again, kids, Google it. Anyway, back at verse 15 of John 15, Jesus says, I have called you friends. And then as proof of this, he gives this reasoning. He says, for all that I have heard from my Father, I've made known to you. He says, I'm telling you everything. I'm not hiding anything. I'm bearing my heart and my soul to you. What I hear from God, I give to you. And so he draws this distinction as he's describing this between servants and friends. He says, you're friends now. See, servants don't really know the hearts of their masters. They just know that they need to obey the rules. They just need to do what they're told. And Jesus says here that the sign of a friendship is when I let you in. You, you don't just do what you're told. You get to know what I'm thinking, what I'm hearing from God. A true friend lets you in. And in verse 13, we see that a true friend also makes sacrifices. Jesus said, no greater, greater love has no one than this, than someone laid down his life for his friends. He, he showed that before he would let his friends down, he would literally lay his life down in sacrifice. That's true loyalty. That's true friendship. I would sacrifice anything rather than let you down. And so friendship matters because you were made for it. It brings something into your life that family can't bring, something that romance can't bring, that coworkers can't bring. In fact, it's been proven multiple ways that the quality of your life goes up when you have good friends. Researchers studied 34 students at the University of Virginia, taking them to the base of a steep hill and fitting them with weighted, a weighted backpack. The students were then asked to look up that hill and estimate the steepness 
of the slope. And some participants stood near their friends during this exercise, while others stood alone. And the students who stood near their friends consistently gave lower estimates of the steepness of the hill. And, and, and in fact, the longer those friends had known each other, the less steep the hill appeared. And the ones who stood alone, they estimated the steepness of the hill to be much higher. Life with friends actually begins to shrink your problems. There's been a lot of talk about blue zones lately, including a recent Netflix documentary. Blue zones are where people live to be 100 years old six to 10 times as often as anywhere else in the world. Susan Pinker did a TED Talk on one unique blue zone uh, village in Sardinia that is one of the only places on earth, even among other blue zones, where the men live as long as the women. So just centenarians everywhere. Researchers looked at the, the, the tens of thousands of comparative subjects and collected data on every aspect of their lifestyle here in Sardinia. Their diet, their exercise, their marital status, how often they went to the doctor, whether they smoked or drank, the quality of the air that they were breathing. And do you know what they found? The, the, the things that extended their longevity the most, the, the top two factors in allowing people to live longer. I'll start with number two. Number two is the quality of their close friendships. They were surrounded by loving, supportive relationships, people they could call in at two in the morning. Of all the longevity factors, close friendships was number two on the list. You know it was number one? It's related but not the same. It's called social integration. More important than lifestyle habits like smoking or drinking or eating more kale or working out or drinking protein shakes. More important than any of that was social integration. Now, th this does not mean you're super close friends. It's about being connected relationally to the community around you. Do you talk to the girl every day who makes your coffee and know her name and where she goes to school? Do you talk to the mailman? Do you talk to the woman who walks her dog by your house every morning? Do you play bridge or poker or have a book club? Being socially integrated with people around you is the biggest predictor of how long you will live. Jesus was onto something. Friendship matters because deep inside we were made for it. But the second reason friendships are so important, look back at John 15, starting in verse 16. It says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Here's the second part. Friendships are a vehicle for mission. If you look closely at Jesus' words here in this section on friendship, you'll see that friendships provide a kind of inflow and outflow opportunity for divine resourcing. God can pour into you through friendships and he can pour out from you into friendships. Jesus says, you didn't cho choose me, but I chose you. For what? Why were we chosen as Jesus' friends? He says, so that you will bear fruit. That's the outflow, bear fruit. And then, secondly, and then he says, ask the Father whatever you need, and he'll give it to you. That's the inflow. We have resourcing outward and resourcing in, inward. Let's talk inflow first. You need good friendships to become more and more like Jesus. You need people who are further along than you, pouring back into your spiritual life. They will become God's presence to you, God's resource. People who are contending for your soul. Who your friends are will largely determine the shape of your life. There's a great phrase that says, show me your friends and I'll show you your future. You see, we tend to pattern our lives after the people who are closest to us. And so if you were, you know, if you got stoned last night, chances are a few of your friends were stoned too. On the other hand, if you're chasing after God with all your heart, chances are a few of your friends are too. 
There's a very straightforward proverb in Proverbs 13, 20. It simply says, whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. And so if you came up with five names on that list earlier, and if Solomon is right, which he is, <laughs> then you're essentially becoming the average of those five people. So as you think about those names, the question should arise, am I hanging around the right people? Do I want to become like those people? Because whether you do or not, you are. Your friendships will start to determine your future. Think about it. Think about the different areas of your life. Do you want to be a good parent? You need to ask, am I hanging around with people who are good parents? Do you want to be stronger financially? You need to ask, am I hanging around with people who know how to manage their money? Do you want to be stronger spiritually? Do you want to get in better shape? Do you want to be more successful at work? You're the average of your five closest friends, which means if you hang around with people who are better than you, wiser than you, smarter than you, better with money than you, better leaders than you, you're going to become more and more like them and you're going to rise to their level. If... On the other hand, you hang out with a bunch of losers and a bunch of partiers and morons, then guess what? You're going to sink down to their level as well. It's just how it works. And you can have all the big dreams and plans in the world, but when it comes down to it, it's not the dreams you dream that determine your destiny. It's the small decisions you make. And one of the most important decisions is who your friends are. You get to choose who you will walk with. That's the inflow side. But there's an outflow side. You may say, yeah, but Jesus hung around with a lot of rough people at times. Some of you are wondering, like, am I supposed to break up with my non-wise friends? In some cases, let me just say clearly, yes. Because for some of you, you've become a follower and not a leader in that relationship. But it's important to remember that friendships are also a vehicle for mission. And so in the context of relationships, it's where Jesus asks us to bear much fruit. The fruit that he's talking about here is lives. It's disciples. Make more disciples. So how do we balance this? Well, I think it's helpful to think about your friendships in three concentric circles. There's the innermost circle. It's called intimacy. This is your three to five close friends. Those are the ones that you'll become like. These should be wise, trustworthy, Christian friends. The next circle is your circle of influence. These are more than just acquaintances, but they're not quite part of your inner circle. These friends have influence on you, and you have influence on them, but you probably wouldn't call them you know, in the middle of the night. The last circle is the care circle. These are people who you are investing in, people you're caring for in some way, but you're not necessarily hanging around them all the time. And listen, some of you see this circles, and, and, and you may need to move some friends out of the circle of intimacy into the circle of influence based on today's message. Now, don't send them an official notification or anything like that. <laughs> this is not about labeling people. It's just a way to think about your interactions. Because if it's true that friendships make us, we should have some awareness of and intentionality behind who's in what circle. Those circles of influence and care are, who, are the people who you're thinking about when we talk about the outflow of mission and discipleship. Who are you investing in? You know, I've been throwing around this word discipleship. We should probably give it just a little bit more definition. What does it mean to disciple someone in the ways of Jesus? Well, this word disciple just means a learner or an apprentice. It's someone who follows the teachings and practices of another. But it's a loaded term these days. For some of you who've been Christians for a while, depending on your church background, that word conjures up very different pictures. For, for some, you picture a kind of a, a relational life-on-life -life connection, raking leaves together, getting groceries together, spending lots of time together until that person kind of that you're discipling sees what walking with Jesus looks like in real life. It's kind of rubbing off on them. 
For others, you picture two people sitting across from each other, kind of knees to knees, probably on on hard chairs, (laughs) diving deep into the pages of scripture, memorizing passages, debating doctrines. Others picture two people at a a side room in the church holding hands and praying over each other. Maybe some of you picture a little group at a local coffee shop at 5 a.m. asking each other deep and probing questions and bearing their souls in accountability to one another. Your church background will largely determine what you picture in your mind when you hear that word discipleship. And listen, all those things can be part of the picture. But I want to give you a straightforward description of discipleship that I think anyone can comprehend. What does it mean to disciple another? Well, discipleship is consistently helping someone take their next steps toward Jesus. Let's just simplify it down to that. That influence circle and maybe that care circle is where to look if you want to begin to engage in a discipleship relationship. If there's some people you want to help to take their next steps toward Jesus. But it begins with being an intentional friend. Remember, in our dream disciple role, we're saying that an intentional friend will build healthy relationships and help God restore broken ones. And so I wanna focus on the second part of that for just a moment. See, it comes back to this word that I talked about a couple weeks ago when I presented a crash course on the gospel. It's this word reconciled or reconciliation. Part of the role of an intentional friend is to work toward restoring broken relationships, starting with the relationship that has been broken by sin between God and mankind. There's a beautiful passage over in 2 Corinthians 5, 16 through 20 that describes a role uh, that has been entrusted to every follower of Jesus. Paul calls it the ministry of reconciliation, and he describes it this way. He says, so from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us, listen, gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. So so see, sometimes friendships are broken, and the Bible is clear. How you respond to struggling and marginalized people in your life is one of the number one indicators of the condition of your heart. Sometimes Christians get a little confused about this. They kind of try to gain a reputation for being spiritually mature, but they don't really love people very much. That's never the way that the Bible or Jesus would ever talk about spirituality. Always it's defined by love for God, and, and, and that love for God is primarily expressed by a love for people. And so look where Paul starts here in this passage. He says that the key starting place to restoring brokenness, he says, is that we regard no one according to the flesh. Another translation says that we no longer regard anyone from a worldly point of view. In other words, as we grow in Christ, as we mature, as the Holy Spirit holds more and more sway in our lives, we actually begin to see people, everyone, through a new lens the Spirit of God will begin to reveal to us the ability to see people how God sees them. And so instead of seeing that guy who flies off into a rage way too quickly and and, and then reacting to him like he's a monster, we say, God, help me see what you see. 
Help me to not regard him according to the flesh. And, and then suddenly we see a guy who was picked on when he was seven or abused by his own dad when he was eight, and he's been battling those demons ever since. And instead of adding to his pain and shame and frustration, I can then say, God, I wanna help you in redeeming that broken narrative. And instead of getting so annoyed with that coworker who, who talks way too much, I, I say, God, let me not regard her from a worldly point of view. What do you see in her? And, and the Spirit says, well, she's been dealing with insecurity anxiety for so long that she feels the need to fill in every blank space with words because it's scarier for her to have silence because that means she's not in control. And you say, okay, God, I want to help you redeem that narrative. And please, I'm not going psychology guy on you here, nor am I suggesting that you walk around quietly diagnosing people all day. What I am saying though is everyone is fighting a battle you can't see. And when we see people through God's eyes, all of a sudden, irritation and anger and annoyance starts to be replaced with compassion and patience and love because this ministry of reconciliation begins with asking God to, to, to see the people around us through his eyes and not according to the flesh. And it's a reminder to us that in our own imperfections, God redeemed us. In fact, that's where Paul goes next. He says, listen, for you, the old has passed away, the new has come. And that transformation is possible for others as well. And so in verse 18, Paul comes back and he says, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself. There's that reminder. There's the gratitude. There's the protector against any pride or arrogance or impatience. He saved me first when I was a mess. But then look what Paul says next. And he says, and he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Jesus now entrusted this ministry to us. He gave us, he committed to us this responsibility. And then he'll later say that we are ambassadors. What's an ambassador? It's a spokesman for another. It's a spokesman of a message of reconciliation. And then he adds, as, as though God is making his appeal through us. <laughs> reconciliation, remember, is the bringing of two parties together who have been separated. Broken relationships, bringing them back together. Jesus entrusted this ministry to a bunch of ordinary, everyday people with ordinary jobs and ordinary lives. And so... It's incumbent upon us to share this message with our ordinary friends by being intentional about our friendships. And where those stories are broken and fractured, we work with God to make them whole again. We are ambassadors after all, ministers of reconciliation. Let me say it this way, before you're a teacher, before you're a shop worker, before you're an advertising agent, before you're a salesman, before you're a business executive, before you're a stay-at-home mom or even a pastor, you're an ambassador of the Most High God. You are a carrier of the great message of reconciliation to the people in your life. What is that message of reconciliation? Paul says it clearly here. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Oh man, guys, everybody needs to hear that. Everybody needs to know about that. And if your world isn't arranged around this message of reconciliation with the people in your spheres of influence, you are gonna get to the end of your one and only life and you're gonna stand before a nail-pierced savior and you're gonna have some regrets. You see, you're not only an intentional friend, you're a repairer of brokenness sent into the world by a loving God. And so will you be an intentional friend? Will you build healthy relationships and will you partner with God to restore broken ones? That's our third dream disciple role. And I'd encourage you as a next step to ponder this week, 
these two intentional friend discipleship questions. They go like this. Who in my life needs me the most during this season and what's my next step with them? And two, where do I need to lean into a relationship that has become distant or broken? As I've said all month, eventually these dream disciple roles are going to be accompanied by trainings and tools and lots of resources to bring them to life. Last week we looked at the find your chair tool that goes along with the role of savvy follower. Today we're going to introduce a tool called My Mission Field. It's going to help us to do some training in the area of being an intentional friend. This is a tool that's just meant to introduce you, to get you thinking about the potential of your spheres of influence. And so, so the question I'm going to pose to you both right now and after you begin to put some names together is, in, in thinking about your mission field is this. It's to ask God, God, who do you want me to be investing in during this season? Ask yourself, who do I want to be investing in during this season? And I know the right answer at some level is everybody but that's not possible and it's okay to have different focuses for different seasons of life. I hope this tool is gonna to help to reveal to you that you don't have to go overseas to accomplish this. Instead, God has already placed you in an incredible mission field. You just have to ask, who am I positioned to reach? Who is receptive and open to my voice right now? Who's receptive to my influence right now? Now, let me step away and go big picture for just a moment. In the old church model, the question always was, how do we get one more person in the room? How, how do we get one more person to attend the crowd? How do we get 10 more? How do we get 20 more? That's addition thinking. Multiplication thinking says, every one of you that's watching this has a circle of people, somewhere between 30 and 300, whom you influence. Actually, there's been some research around this, and, and in an average church, the average person directly influences about 120 people at any given time, 120. So if there are 5,000 people listening to this message this week, that represents a cloud of influence, a mission field of 600,000 people. That's the networking mission field of this congregation. And listen, if you look at the Gospels, Jesus acknowledged these networks. He used them for recruiting. He taught with them in mind. He prayed for them. In fact, what was burdening Jesus most in his final prayer on the night he was betrayed, he was praying for us. He was praying for his disciples, for our unity, for our protection. But also in John 17, which I referenced a couple weeks ago, he prayed for the networks of people who would hear the gospel through his disciples. He says these words. He says, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. There's that great call. And listen what he prays. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. He's thinking of the disciples of the disciples of the disciples of the disciples and so on. And so I'm not going to have you think about 120 names today. But to just start the process of brainstorming through some categories of people who are in your mission field. Who are the people in your family? Who are the people in your neighborhood, in your workplace, in your hobbies, in your school, in your church, in your community uh, involvements, and maybe other spaces in your life? You can't be close to all of those people at once. But in the process of brainstorming, I want to ask you again to ask God, who do you want me to be investing in during this season? This doesn't mean just evangelism, like people who don't know God. Maybe it's a season of discipleship and someone in those circles needs mentoring. Maybe it's a season of leadership and somebody in those circles needs to be, you know, apprenticing with you, step in and step up into a new role in their life. But in our rooms right now, a host is going to come and walk you through the My Mission Field tool. I love you guys.